we had graduation yesterday. And as a teacher, you hope that when they leave you, that they at least remember the main things that you went over and over and over again. We all on the faculty have different sayings. And by the time a student graduates, you can read one of those sayings and they'll tell you exactly who says that. And we all have them because we all have different angles of what we want the students to really get in terms of how, uh, how we want them to see and understand the gospel and how it influences us in our reading and understanding of scripture. Seems that John is the same way, that he wants to keep the main things the main things. And he keeps saying the main things over and over and over again. As a teacher, if you have taught in any way, uh, parents are included, right? You teach in any way, then you know that you have to learn that there are a handful of things that are essential. Because if you're overbearing, uh, your children will never know what you ultimately want them to know. So you have to have sent, there's essential things. And what John wants us to see is the centrality of the gospel for assurance and for life. He tried just in the previous passage to lay this out as being the family of God. You're in the family. He doesn't kick you out. Once you're in, you're in. You've been forgiven. You've overcome the evil one. You know God. Over and over he's saying this. And so since this is the fact, this is the matter, this is the foundation upon which uh, all of salvation rests, he then goes on and says, therefore, since you're part of the family of God, no longer live a part of the family of this world. There is a change that has taken place. So when John speaks of here about the world, he's contrasting God's grace and love and goodness with the godlessness and the rebelliousness and the darkness of the world that is ruled by the evil one and all of his minions, as John will eventually start saying in chapter three, that there are those who are born of God and there's those who are born of the devil. And so you got these two competing ideas here that he's saying, you are in God, you are in Christ, you have been delivered from the world, therefore don't go back to the things that you have been delivered from. And that's what he is essentially saying here in just these few verses. So we're going to think about this idea here of this command to push away or to leave the things of the world behind. Now John is not, first of all, let's think about devotion to the world. John is not telling the believer to not love God's creation. God is not telling the believer uh, to not love human beings. To not love the, the sense and the things of culture and how God uh, shows us his wondrousness and his diversity in the uh, 
the history of mankind, the good things that we see. So it's not as though we are to dismiss all things about the world in the sense of creation. In fact, that's not what he's speaking about regarding the world at all. The world that he is speaking of and that the New Testament consistently refers to as the world is this world uh, structure, this world system in which the rulers and the princes and the powers of the air is dominated by the spiritual evil in this world that calls for rebellion against God. That system, that sense of a godless uh, rejection of what is right and good and giving oneself over to the desires of one's heart and not turning to the creator. That's the world. We can liken it in several ways. It's It's the flesh within us that comes together and makes up the world of flesh. The world system of which we are speaking is that which is in opposition to God. We see it very early. We see it in the garden with the evil one as a serpent coming in, rebellion. We see it in the rebellion of Adam. We see it in the rebellion of humanity before the flood. We see it in the rebellion of humanity at Ta- Tower of Babel. We see it of the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness with the golden calf and then rejecting the promised land. We see the world system. We see the world system here in our country. We see the world system and its hand upon our state, our local area, upon the people of this state, this region. The world system is here. Why? Because the world system is in you. The world's not out there. The world is in here. This is where the rebellion against God begins. It's not them out there. It's every human being who's walking on the face of this earth. We collectively in our rebellious nature against God, we are the world. So we can never point the fingers and say it's those people over there. It's the unbelievers over there when the world is still in you. the flesh. And so God says, do not love the world. And so we have to begin to consider exactly what he means. He means this, do not love anything that is in opposition to your heavenly father. Anything that clearly expresses a sense of of the rejection of God and his righteousness, his moral law, anything like that, anything that is idolatrous, you are not to love those things. You're not to be devoted to those things. Other people in the world are, they will be. You have been devoted to these things. You have been devoted to them yourself. Now you are to turn away from that devotion and pursue what is 
good and righteous. What John is saying here is something extremely strong. He's saying, if anyone, if someone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Do you feel the weightiness of that? Or did I just read it off the t over your heads? If you're paying attention to what John said, this ought to be a heavy and somber thing for us. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So we have to begin to think, what's the love of the world look like? The reality is God is saying you can't love both of them. You can't have a heart for God and a heart for sin. You can't give yourself to the sense of what uh, God offers in the gospel and at the same time give yourself to what the lust of your heart desires in the world. You're being pulled in two different directions. You're being pulled away from God and your idea of being pulled back to God in your religion and the reality is you can't serve both. Because to serve one is to reject, to be disloyal, to turn away from the other. We often uh, live like we can have both. One foot in the kingdom and one foot out. In the kingdom of this world the reality is, though, the world is seductive. It is seductive in a subtle way. There are clear expressions of the world in the things that shock us in terms of typically the general person shocks them. And then there are things of the world that are in us that has been referred to by a wonderful book that called, it's called Respectable Sins, and it's respectable in quotation marks. The things we tolerate in the church. The things we see as not being as bad as others. One of those things was lust, envy. That's what he's talking about here. Desire is the word for lust. Desire is, in my opinion, in this translation, it's too soft. It's not just a desire like I desire uh, to watch Alabama football, because you know why. It's talking about a craving, something that exists within you that you are moved by, that moves from within to without in terms of action from the heart to practice. That's the idea of lust here. The world is subtle. It beguiles. Think about Eve. This is the most wonderful illustration that I can give you because I am convinced that in this passage John is thinking about the garden. And yet he is thinking about what Eve saw. Because here we have, I prefer the translation, the lust 
the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. These are the things that he names here. And this is a catch-all for what we see regarding what Eve saw in the fruit. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes. It looked good to eat, lust of the flesh, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. Do you see this? John is saying the world came when sin came. And this is the collective perspective of the world. And the reality is, is that the lust of these things are a desire for everything that is not of God. And he's saying, don't love these things. Don't love this system. And John is smart. He's, he's old. He's in his 90s. He, at least he knows what's going on here. He's walked with Christ. He's walked through this world without Christ, only with Christ's spirit within him. And so he knows the subtlety of sin. And he says, essentially in his repetition, he's, he's given us the idea that the more you dabble, the more your affections are drawn away from the Lord. The more you dabble and the more you kind of allow yourself to be swayed in different ways by certain sins or pet sins or even, even types of practices that, that continue to nag at you. It's a subtle thing. Competes for your heart. You can't serve two masters. We read that earlier, didn't we? We read that earlier in the reading. You cannot serve two masters. Matthew 6. Devotion to the world leads to destruction. Let me give you an example of how devotion to the world leads to destruction. And we want to, I want to get to the heart because this, this ought to shock us more than anything else. Judas. Here he is. On the one hand with Jesus, professing love, knowing him intimately, knowing him as a friend and as a, a Lord and a master in so many ways, as a rabbi and as a teacher. But all the time, what is he dabbling in? He's thievery. He's He's stealing from the money purse. No one else knows it, just him. And then he begins to become more and more greedy, lusting more and more after the things of this world, the things that he can possess. And he eventually goes to the degree of selling the Son of God for 30 shekels of silver. Love of the world leads to destruction. Do not love the world. The contrast here that John continually makes is do not love the world, but love the one 
that was sent into the world from the Father. These things are not of the Father, but the one who came from without into the world is from the Father. That is the one who must have our devotion. The devotion here is not to oneself, it's to another. And one of those things that impacts all of our lives is to begin to thinking, begin thinking more objectively about Christ. Objectively as a person. That you're devoted to him. That when you gather to worship, we're not just gathering as a church to sing together and to pray and to hear the word of God preach. We gather to, to praise the object, the one due our praise, our Savior, has nothing to do with what we feel like. In fact, some of the best times of worship, I'm sure for many of you, in terms of just expressing your heart, is when you have been smashed by providence. And that's when you throw yourself on Christ even more. It's not how we feel. That's where our generations, uh, previous generations or generation today and generations of the future will continue to lose sight of the center of the gospel and that's Christ himself. It's not about how you feel. It's not about how worship makes you feel. It's not about you. It's not about me. And thank God it's not. Devotion to the world. Secondly, desires of the world. Now, there are three things mentioned here, as I said, that encapsulate the world system. They're not exhausted, but they're more in a sense of comprehensive. Uh, they include all of what the world represents uh, in view of God's, God's holiness and righteousness. Now, remember I said this word for desire is the word lust. Now, what is lust? Most of, the, most of the time we think of sexual lust, correct? When we use that word, I'm assuming right. We just, that's the word we use, sexual desire. We use the word lust. But the reality is the scripture doesn't, doesn't uh, disseminate or uh, divide from the reality of sexual lust and the desires for other things. It's the same word. So rather than think the idea of one type of desire as worse than others, the reality is that all desires apart from God and his glory are wrong. This is an intense thing. This isn't something that it, you know, in you is like, oh, well, what do I want? Do I want Burger King? No, I'm desiring pizza. We're not talking about passing desires. We're talking about the desires that have gripped your soul. Those desires that move you. Those desires that you're not really aware of that are there. But when you begin to think through your purpose of life, your purposes in life, what your priorities are, you begin to see that there is something there. All of us do. 
And it can be a variety of different thing, things, but something is there. And it's never alone. Even in our good deeds, they are what before God? There is filthy rags. So even the good desires we attempt to do is mixed because a sinful heart can't have ultimately pure desires. So there is a lust in all of us. And I'm not speaking particular, I mean within our flesh craving. And we will fill that craving one way or another, or we will try to fill that craving in whatever poison that we pick. Christians have been delivered from the enslavement of these things. And so we must continue to resist them. God is saying through Christ, I have broken the power of the flesh over you. I have broken the power of that lust, but it's still there. And so you must depend on the grace of Christ, the power of the Spirit, to turn from the things that instinctively in your fallenness, in your sinfulness, you are drawn to. We love the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, correct? It comes on, everybody perks up. And what do we sing in there? We all sing it because we know the truth of it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you have seen sin in your life, as a Christian, you know that proneness. And you know that but for God's care of you, you're going after it. And so you pursue righteousness and godliness, trusting that God is going to help you. Trusting in his word that there is no temptation that is common to man. That we are not able to overcome because the Lord will always provide a way. Do we see it all the time? Usually we're about... uh, A mile past it by the time we realized it was there because we weren't paying attention. But when we see the love of Christ for us, when we see that on that tree our sins crushed him, our sins were there, the weight of sin was upon him, and the Father took the hammer of his justice and dropped it directly upon him. And when we see that that's what took place there as the broken and bloodied body of Christ is up there suffering, his soul is suffering death to save you from the world, the world that's in you. By clothing in you his righteousness, breaking the power of that lust, And bringing you through your life along the way, teaching you what it's like to depend on his son. And to become more like his son along the way. Just like the lust comes from within, it must be broken from within. 
You can't go change clothes. You can't join a society. You can't turn over a new leaf. You can't determine what tomorrow will be. Why do we for a moment think that we could create this body and have jurisdiction over this body and, and, and think that this is ours that we can control when God is the one who made us and gave us life, animated us, and He controls both the visible and the invisible. The invisible of us. And for that power to be broken it must be broken from within. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And that's why John says in chapter 3 of 1 John, you must be born again. You must be born of God because by nature you are born of the evil one. The one who gave us life must give us new life. And when he breaks that lust, we begin to see something. We begin to see that everything we taste and touch and feel and think in this world is, is fading. We begin to understand Kohelet, the preacher, in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity. All is vanities. Why? Because it doesn't matter what we gain in this life. Every one of us come to death. Vanity of vanities. And so we need. We need the life-giving power of Christ. The life-giving power of this word. We need the life-giving power of the resurrection with which he was raised and Paul tells us is now at work in us. Christ has raised us from the dead and brought us out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of darkness. And we are now citizens of a new kingdom. Now all of those things that I just said, are paraphrases within the past sentence that kept going and kept going and kept, those are all statements in scripture. I'm merely telling you what scripture is already saying and scripture is saying that in Jesus Christ, if you know him, you are a new creature. The old has passed away and the new has come and therefore live like the new creature that you are. I'll probably say this next time I'm in the pulpit because John will say this again and again and again. And this is the message that we constantly need. Is it not correct? We constantly need this so that we'll see the beauty of Christ and the ugliness of this world. Let's pray. We give you thanks, our Father. We ask that you would help us to understand the power of our Savior at work in us, to see that we have been delivered 
It's hard for us, Father, to see the implications of that in day-to-day -day life, but we pray that you would keep bringing us to the knowledge of the salvation you have given so that we will live for our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.